Welcome to another episode of the Destination Linux Podcast. Welcome to episode 92 of Destination Linux. This podcast is a podcast of opinions made up of three allegedly semi-intelligent people discussing our passion for Linux. Although this time, we're replacing one of the three with someone who might be more intelligent than the rest of us. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Michael, your host this week. And with me today is Ryan. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing awesome. Nice. And Gabriele from Tech Pills. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. So did I get that correct, the, the pronunciation? Yep. There we That's go. Good. Pretty good. <laughs> All right. So Gab, uh, thanks for joining us. You're, he's subbing in for Zeb this week. Uh, Zeb isn't feeling well. So he uh, we basically last last minute, and Gab was really gracious to help out with that. So again, thank you very much for that. Uh, for, for, the, for those who don't know, uh, Gabriele is a creator of the, the amazing Tech Pills YouTube channel and where you can find him discussing about Linux and hardware. Um, he's basically another Ryan, but an Italian version. A better version <laughs> of me. Let's be honest. <laughs> That's, you said it. Anyway, <laughs> so you can find doing like uh, information videos and reviews and things like that, as well as sometimes occasionally joining us on some Ballistic Overkill, where he yeah. totally destroys Ryan. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, Gab, tell us tell us us and uh, your our viewers about how you about yourself and how you got into Linux. Yeah, thank you, Michael. So I'm going to tell you something about myself. So first of all, I am a computer science student. Um, I am always I have always been passionate about technology, and I started using Linux. Like uh, I started off a as a Mac user when I was young. Uh, but uh, yeah, funnily enough, uh, what brought me to Linux was macOS itself because I started exploring like the Unix-ness of macOS, and I found out that basically the underlying thing was kind of the same as this other thing called Linux that I've been hearing about. So I, I actually started uh, like dual booting on my 2009 MacBook. Um, and from then it went like basically I, the next uh, PC I bought was a a custom PC, uh, a desktop a desktop PC, and I installed uh, Linux right away on it. And uh, how? What was started. the first distro you went with? Actually, it was a very ancient version of Linux Mint. Uh, back in the hmm. day, it was be, uh, I, I chose Linux Mint because it came with uh, like all the codecs pre-installed, mm-hmm. and it had like uh, this pre-interface on top of the Ubuntu implementation of GNOME 2. Then I went straight to Ubuntu 10.10. I think it was. That was a really good one. And yeah. Uh, it, well, it was very nice back in the day. And then from Ubuntu, I tried some different stuff. Uh, I basically had my times with uh, with distro hopping. I, I <laughs> went from Ubuntu to I tried Fedora, but I, I didn't make I didn't really like it very much ever. Boo! Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's just not for me. Um, but anyway, uh, I tried basically all of them. I mean, OpenSUSE, even uh, CentOS, uh, Debian. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, uh, for, for a very long time, I, I, I got stuck with Ubuntu GNOME. And then I just uh, installed, once I installed Antergos, 
and that uh, brought me to Arch, and now I'm Arch all the way. Wow, I can't believe you didn't say you use Arch first. <laughs> that's that's what's amazing. Right? That's that's Ryan was trying to give an example a couple episodes ago. That's what you're supposed to you're do. You're supposed to tell people you use Arch the first thing that comes out of your mouth. That's like a requirement for using Arch. <laughs> oh, about, but uh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry by the way I use Arch. Um, no, well really. done. Well done. You go. redeemed yourself. So we've also done a collab video together on your Tech yep. Pills channel. We did that on the AMD versus NVIDIA discussion, you being an NVIDIA user uh, at the time currently and me being a Vega user. And we had a good discussion on that. So you can check that out as well. So you've got really great content out there that we love. So thanks yeah. for agreeing to co-host with us, man. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Yeah. So speaking of things that we've been doing this week, Ryan, uh, how, you, how have you been doing? And I, you said, like we were talking about earlier, you mentioned you were doing something really interesting with something from Mozilla. Yeah. In fact, I love this because you didn't even know it existed and you know yeah. everything about them. So that was shocking. But I am starting to shoot some new videos on home automation using the Raspberry Pi. So the Raspberry Pi is going to be the base and I started looking for home automation solutions. And there's a ton out there, right? There's a ton. And I ran across one that I wasn't familiar with and it caught my eye due to the simplicity of it and just having really good documentation for setup and somebody who's not, I've not dabbled in this area a lot before. And that was Mozilla Internet of Things. So Mozilla Internet of Things is basically the Mozilla Foundation's answer to having the ability to set up home automation via the Raspberry Pi and be able to interface th with things that use Z-Wave Z or um, I think the other one is ZB or uh, one of the other uh, basic signal types that you can use for these different devices. So I have the Raspberry Pi set up with Mozilla as the gateway. I have the Z-Wave Z-Stick on its way here today and then I have some devices that I'm going to connect to it. And I'm going to shoot the video and we'll see how it is. I don't know if it will be good, bad, or indifferent. It is definitely in the beta. And Mozilla IoT is looking for people to help uh, contribute to this project. But based on some of the screenshots and the GUIs and things, mm -hmm. it looks like a very easy way to set up home automation through a GUI tool. And we're going to see how well it works. Yeah, it looks like a really cool uh, project. And I'm like kind of disappointed myself that I didn't know what it was before when you asked me, it was like, have you heard of the, the Mozilla internet of things? Like you could put Mozilla on Mozilla stuff on internet of things thing. Yeah, sure. Whatever. <laughs> and you're like, Oh, it's an actual project. Oh, okay. You were disappointed. Ooh. I was so excited. I finally knew something you had no idea about that was Mozilla related. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'll have the videos out on my channel. If it works, you'll see that. If it doesn't, you'll see that. Too. <laughs> exactly. Can't wait to see what happens there. Um, so let's m move on to the, the the email section of the show. We have a really interesting email that the email that came into the, the the show this week. Ryan, what did they have to say? This is such a cool email. So I'm going to read. It's a short email. I'm going to read it verbatim because it's worth. It says, "I enjoy the show immensely. While Rocco is missed, you three guys have filled the void very well. A nice mix of personalities, especially Ryan. I don't see okay. that part." What? Oh, I added that. My bad. Uh, my okay. present age is 82, and I have been using Microsoft products since the early DOS days. That's where I started with Microsoft. Well, not with Microsoft, but I started computers with DOS in my father's computer shop. 
which I think eventually helped me with Linux and not being scared of the terminal terminal and command lines and stuff. But in any case, he goes on to say, up to and including Windows 10, I am the family support person and often am called up to do software repairs, including installing new operating systems. Some years ago, tried Red Hat and got frustrated and ditched it. Two years ago, I decided to try Linux Mint and got hooked. Long story short is that I spend 95% of my computer time on Linux. We're going to get that to 100. We sure are eventually. (laughs) I've tried many versions of Linux, but now spend my Linux time on Mint 19 with KDE. Arco Linux with KDE and MX17. Throwing some love out there for MX, our friend Dolphin out there. So, Richard, it is awesome that uh, your email, you're 82 years old. You started out with Microsoft but found the much glory, much more glorious Linux out there. And obviously being the family support system, it's much easier as our prior email talked about supporting Linux systems than it is Windows out there. So I just, I love this email. So awesome. Yeah, this is is a fantastic email. As soon as I saw it, I was like, this is going in. This is going in. Like yep. the, the imagine, like just uh, when he, I when I actually basically when I saw the he said he was, he was eighty two and I was like this is interesting just by the by default of that but then also go into the, like how he's the, the tech support thing and he's talking about how he recently got into Linux after like this, the 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 long career of using Windows and helping people with Windows and stuff like that it just it like it probably it like for me when I first went to Linux it was well when I first transitioned primarily to Linux it was like a lift a burden off my shoulders type thing. Mm-hmm. So like the the amount of time he's probably spent with like helping people is is it's just like the the idea that that a lot of that could just go away is like such a fantastic. I wonder if the five percent is still helping people though. We should. It could be that would yeah, be acceptable probably. then. Five yeah. percent of just booting it up just so you can get the ISO burnt and then switch them to Linux. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you again, Richard, for yeah, your email. This is awesome. Thank you. Um, so. Up first in the show, we're going to do something different. There's a really, really interesting thing and a very a lot of excitement a brewing around the Juno release for Elementary OS. So we, we actually had an, an opportunity to sit down and talk with Daniel Foray from Elementary to get the inside scoop of the release for Juno 5.0. So joining us this week is Daniel Foray from Elementary OS. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Uh, we, we actually did an interview with Daniel on episode 62 of Destination Linux. For, if you would like to check out more about, learn, learn more about Daniel and Elementary OS, we had a really in-depth, deep interview on that one, so you can check that out. And today we wanted to have had you come on and talk about the newly released Elementary Juno 5.0. So let's first off, let's talk about the, the Elementary names. Your, your distros have a, a, a name based on like uh, Roman gods, Greek gods, things like that. And I was curious when when you picked Juno, was there any particular reason why you chose that particular name, or was it just because Juno? <laughs> oh come on, Michael! What was that? <laughs> That's a dad joke. You're welcome. Oh man, uh, no, there's no like super hidden meaning behind it or anything. We just kind of go through and um, look up different names of uh, deities and stuff, and go, oh, you know, that one sounds cool. So uh, this one sounded cool this year. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, there is a ton of excitement for Juno. There's been excitement building nonstop. It's been in our Telegram group. As soon as the beta came out, people were grabbing it and playing with it and giving their opinions on it. And so it's got to feel really good to have so many people excited about this. And we're finally here. 
So what are some of the features that you're most excited about, though, that happened during this release with Juno? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, basically our, our overall goal for, for Juno is to do like three things, right? One was to refine our user experience even further, uh, was to improve productivity for our new users and our seasoned users and to really work on our developer platform. And I think we, we like nailed it on, on all aspects there. And for me, I think like some of the things like nightlight, you know, make it way easier to uh, work throughout the day. Uh, we have stuff like the new um, location uh, services pop up. So when applications try to access location services, now we throw a pop up and ask you if that's okay beforehand. Nice, uh, nice. Yeah. And then uh, another one that I really like is uh, housekeeping. So that's um, kind of a new setting where you can automatically trash uh, or automatically permanently delete old trash files. So you know nice. things hanging out in your trash forever. I like that. Yeah, but that takes away that mystery of you've trashed stuff six months ago and then you go <laughs> and finally see the icon and realize you have all this trash sitting here and that's why you have no space. Yeah, well, I don't yeah. know. It it also ruins the whole the the, tre- the treasure discovery of things that you could you could keep <laughs> that were supposed to be deleted. They were no. I love that feature, and I like the the you know some of these features like nightlight and things. And deal, we've talked about this I think before in a in a prior episode about nightlight being one of those features you mm-hmm. don't know you need until you have it, and then yeah. you can't live without it. And yep. those those little touches and things make just a really good experience. Are there? Any features that you weren't able to sneak in to the to Juno in time before it got released? Yeah, so the big one is uh, the uh, installation and onboarding, uh, big redesign. So we did a lot of work uh, collaborating with System76 on that. And um, the installer portion uh, totally works, and that's what's shipping in Pop! OS today. Uh, but the actual onboarding and setup experience is the other half that still needs work. And so that's something that uh, we're going to look at for the next probably point release of Elementary OS. That's nice. awesome. And um, about the App Center, like it's, it's one of the most uh, interesting parts of Elementary S, arguably. And uh, it's also getting some love from, from, what I, from what I've heard. And what are some of the improvements you've made to the App Center? Yeah, so uh, we've definitely done like a ton of performance and stability improvements. People found like little issues here and there that were causing crashes with certain types of data. So we want to make sure like that the application is really robust and no matter whether uh, data being passed through it is valid or not or coming through like third-party software sources that we're dealing with that um, in a, in a good way. So it, it's way more stable and robust even when you um, do some tweaks to the system now. Um, but the biggest thing I think for App Center is kind of our push to continue um, helping developers with funding and that now we have um, the system in place where you can go to a developer's page and if they've uh, decided to monetize their app, then you can um, throw money at them at any time, not just when you download the app, even uh, before you've downloaded or after you've downloaded. And then on the updates page, um, if you download an app for free, and uh, then you get an update for it, it'll prompt you again and say, hey, you know, would you like to uh, throw some money at this developer? And you can always choose to pay zero, you know, if you still want to keep trying it and stuff like that. But we really want to encourage users to help fund the software that they're downloading. Yeah, I mean, that's a a noble goal because there's a lot of issues where software has been fantastic and it just stops being developed because people lose their motivation. 
And one of the one of the things is they don't have time to devote to it, and you know, voluntarily. So if they were able to get money from it, it gives them more motivation to you know continue the the work that they're doing. So that's all. That's a fantastic thing. So I'm I'm looking forward to it to see what happens, both you know for the developers and out of curiosity to see if this model can work. Yeah, I think uh, our ultimate goal is is to try to get um, to a point where we can help provide a living for open source software mm-hmm. developers and make it so it's not just a hobby, but it's something that they can actually do and put food on their table from. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, about the App Center, um, as, as far as I know, it, it's currently limited to elementary OS. I mean, um, I'm sure that many other people using other distributions would love to be able to have the app center maybe using something like I don't know app images, snaps, or flat packs to uh, to have basically the same experience, but on any other distro. This would also help developers getting like uh, funds out of their open source apps, right? I mean, I think uh, that choice is up to developers how they want to do that if they want to pursue that kind of cross uh, desktop model. Uh, I think for a lot of our developers that they really like that um, we have like a known environment and a known development path. And uh, for a lot of people um, who maybe don't necessarily have a lot of time to try to support tons of different distros that um, they can come in and and kind of... um, play inside of a known area and for them that gives them more time to work on the things that they care about and not kind of fix compatibility issues so Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of our developers who maybe aren't really interested in that cross distro story yeah so uh, that's actually interesting because later in the show we're going to talk about a a discussion that's very uh on par with that topic of you know whether like you could look at elementary as like a platform type of thing rather than just a distro um so i i agree that's an interesting thing but uh would it be you you're still releasing everything at like the app center itself is going to be open source at like at some point or if it is already like but so if someone want, if a distro wanted to include it they could at, at that point right yeah everything is open source top to bottom the uh, publishing back end and everything is all completely open source and that's all up on our github page um so pop os ships uh, a fork of the app center client right now so it doesn't have any of like the payment stuff and it doesn't involve our repo but they're actually using just the um the actual software installation and uh, exploration part of it. So mm-hmm. it, it's useful for other distros, even if you're not trying to replicate that store experience. But if you did want to set up your own instance of the uh, App Center dashboard backend, you could totally do that. All right, fantastic. Um, so another thing that's really interesting that Elementary is, is really known for is the the design and the, just the overall appeal and beauty of the of the setup. So, what if what have you changed for Juno that's like basic only like the aesthetics? So, I think the um, the biggest thing that people will probably notice is a lot of the changes to iconography, and especially um, in this release, when you open files, you'll notice that we switched from uh, blue folders to Manila folders now. Mm-hmm. I actually, it's kind of silly that a lot of people. Uh, are kind of, I saw those people are not they're kind of bothered by that change, and then I'm a big fan of it because the Manila folder it just is more clean for a folder design, and it also means that you're not going to have to worry about whether your you know your your icon set matches that particular folder. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's kind of a divisive change, but I think it's a change for the better, and I think it'll kind of uh, help our branding, especially for people. Um, there's still a lot of people who, for some reason, are expecting when they open Elementary OS to, for it to be Mac-like. So I think that um, getting 
further away from some of those aesthetics that will help our uh, brand disassociate from those expectations. Okay. Do you, do you have a speaking of which is that do you are you saying that you don't really prefer the the Mac uh, comparison or is that just more like you want to if someone compares it you just want to make it where it's distinct enough that you know it's not like a complete copy type thing because a lot of people do ex- like kind of assume it's a copy just by the the, the default design. Um, with, basically it's just because of the dock at the bottom, but still. Yeah. I think people see like the dock and the blue folders and they immediately think like, oh, you know, it's supposed to look like Mac OS and then they start using it and they realize that like everything's different. Like it's not like <laughs> Mac OS at all. And yeah. then they kind of get upset and they're like, oh, well, this isn't what I expected things to be. So I think that, um, a big challenge for us branding wise is to make sure to set those expectations and, uh, make sure that when people are, um, you know, evaluating elementary OS that they do it for its own sake and they aren't, they aren't expecting it to be like something that it's not. It's really interesting because I think for a while that was considered a huge compliment, right? Like you, it's Mac, like it's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous. It's simplistic. Cause that's what Mac was known for. And what it is interesting too, as a developer standpoint, well, number one, after dongle gate, that's not so much of a compliment, I guess. And then <laughs> uh, but from a developer standpoint, you want your product to stand it on. And elementary does. It stands on its own. It's, there, there are similarities you could make between any OS and say, well, this has a start menu, so therefore it's like Windows. That's not really the case. Elementary completely stands on its own. I think originally it probably was meant when people were doing reviews on it to be a compliment of its beauty and simplicity initially, meaning it gets out of your way and you can yeah, just use probably. it. But now it's probably becoming more of those from a developer standpoint where you want to differentiate yourself from that enough where that's not what you're going after, right? It's yeah. just beautiful on its own. Uh, and we talked about that in our prior interview that your background in history and really making things beautiful has gone a lot into making elementary what it is and making it so popular. But besides the beauty, I like to know what's under the hood. So if we pop the hood on elementary, what are some things behind the scenes that you got into Juno that are improvements to the experience, but people might not necessarily see from an aesthetic standpoint. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the biggest things for us this cycle was really digging through uh, all of the issue tracker and targeting as many issues as we possibly can. I think that, uh, I think this cycle we fixed something like, um, like 700 issue reports or something like that. We closed wow. in the Juno cycle. Huge. Yeah. Um, we, we went through a lot and we're working on, um, cleaning up like our code quality and being a lot more strict about that. Uh, we moved everything over to, um, the Mason build system and doing that really exposed a lot of, uh, issues that we had in our build system and helped us to be better about, um, localization, believe it or not, because the localization tools that are available in Mason build. So this is like the, probably the best a thoroughly localized version of elementary OS we've ever produced from like a technical standpoint. Nice. Yeah. Do you guys do any work with uh, any specific attention to gaming or anything in performance in that, say for G maybe it's not just gaming, but GPU compatibility overall, or is most of that just kind of built into the kernel you adopt? Yeah, I think the majority of like hardware compatibility stuff is coming um, directly from Ubuntu. Um, when we first started out, um, we were trying to poke into some of that stuff, but we realized that um, the more, excuse me, the more uh, patches that we carry on some of the low-level stack, the um, longer it takes us to respond when there are things like security updates. Uh. 
Makes and sense. so being really close to the low level stack um, with Ubuntu means that we can get security updates right away directly from the Ubuntu security team. Yeah, that's a that's a good re- good reason to do it. And it also does it based, because it's based on 1804, uh, that means that you could also use the hardware enablement stack, right? Because they said that it isn't by default is it 1804 or does that that's the point release maybe. I think it's 1810 is going to have it by default. 18.04 Mate has it now. Oh, okay. As I understand it. Yep. Yeah, I, I believe that the, the rolling uh, enablement stack was supposed to happen um, either this release or it already happened or, or something like that. But yeah, the, the I know that um, the upstream uh, hardware enablement stuff is now rolling. So that's really convenient for our users. Awesome. Okay, awesome. So uh, for those uh, for those people that have been enjoying the beta uh, up until now, uh, do you think there are any changes that the beta users will enjoy with this official uh, stable release? Yeah, so um, I definitely would recommend that anybody on the beta does a clean install of the final because there's always little um, things here and there. I know that um, there are some things that changed um, between the first beta and the second beta regarding like input method localization and things like that. So um, there are some packages that um, I'm not 100% sure would have, have been replaced or upgraded cleanly there. Um, so there, there actually was a ton of localization fixes. I know that there was a bunch of stuff that landed recently um, in regards to online accounts. Also, uh, we've been working um, kind of in a more uh, upstream collaborative space um, with um, kind of free desktop on on the uh, single sign-on online accounts. So nice. um, there's a big transition there to to the kind of new uh, free desktop platform for that. Those are some big changes. Do you find people with the beta don't really understand the concept of beta? Is that something you guys run into from a, a development standpoint, meaning tech people like myself that work in the industry, I know what beta means. It means you're, you're there to test. You're not going to have all the full features, but you think everybody kind of gets that based on what you guys are seeing from the beta release? Definitely not. Um, you know, no matter how many warnings we put up and stuff like that, there are people who um, like blog and then direct link to the download and users never see that stuff. And then um, like I just uh, had an issue report the other day where a user was frustrated because um, they encountered a really big problem and um, the problem was addressed in Git master uh, relatively quickly, but um, a package update hadn't come down and they were upset because they were like, Hey, I've had this on like all my production machines and like, this is my main OS and this is not ready to be a main OS. Wow. Like, yeah. No. Well, that's what a beta is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. You download stuff like without even looking at what, what they're clicking. Yeah, that's true too. But yeah, but that the idea they're putting on a production machine when it has beta uh, every time it's on the if you go to the website every time it's even clickable there's a beta thing next to it. It's like yeah, dude, don't yeah. touch that if you t- yeah, don't put it in production even, right. Even the uh, the default wallpaper says beta now. <laughs> that, that's, that's a good uh, method. Yeah, that's a good tool. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. So, I think the next step is only like uh, not not releasing any non-stable build like as an ASO, but or maybe yeah. it's like when they launch it instead of like those little get started guys, it pops up and says, "Are you sure you should be using this?" <laughs> we'll have to do one of those ones like GitHub where it's an entry and they have to actually type in like this is an unstable, not for production. You know, like otherwise that. they'll just click OK. 
<laughs> exactly. That might be a good idea. Or it's you like, could have a little test of their knowledge of Linux in the industry. If they pass the <laughs> test, they can download the beta. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it just like erases itself. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. Um, but so, so more back to like serious note, what, what, as far as like the community and like, they, let's say for people who have been testing it and want to contribute more, how like, you know, genuinely testing, not just randomly installing it, how can they, uh, contribute to the elementary team, you know, after this release and like for like, uh, you know, point releases and things like that. Yeah. So the best place to uh, get started with that is on our website. We have a get involved page. So that's elementary.io forward slash get dash involved. And there's a big page there that lists like all the different ways that you could possibly um, get involved from translations, desktop development, web development, uh, design, like everything is all listed there with tons of links and documentation. Nice. Yeah. So that's the best way is to go. And um, there are like bite size issues on GitHub. If you're uh, interested in desktop development, and we have a community Slack that you can jump into, and everybody's uh, super like engaged and helpful there. Like we really want to help people uh, of all skill levels uh, get involved in, and learn more. Nice. So if I have no background, say in in development or coding per se, could I still go out, hang out in the Slack, and people aren't going to make fun of me and say, "Get out of here, loser." <laughs> no, definitely. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of like little things that pop up that require like no coding experience whatsoever to fix. Like somebody went around recently and submitted a bunch of patches for anywhere um, that it's using three periods instead of the ellipsis character just to like switch those nice. or to, like mm -hmm. uh, improve grammar on different strings or whatever. You know, like there's a bunch of stuff that um it doesn't require you to know how to write code to make it better. See, I found a place where I might be able to help Michael, and then in my credentials, I can say contributed to elementary. <laughs> yeah. How cool would that be? Yeah, and then they <laughs> click on it, little like learn more typos. <laughs> yeah, typos. <laughs> <laughs> Fix the wrong period in the wrong area. Hey, but it, it helped, and I can have it in there. So we, we talked about in episode 62, your love of music. You have music out there on SoundCloud. Um, and you also do audio production, not necessarily always utilizing Linux tools, but there are new tools that have become available. So I was curious, as somebody who produces music, have you had a chance to check some of those out, like Reaper and Traction and some of those, and are you seeing the audio production capabilities in Linux improve? You know, I, I've heard about some of the new tools coming out, but I haven't got a chance to check them out yet just because I've been so busy with elementary OS stuff. I haven't really done any music stuff lately. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. So uh, until like uh, the next two years uh, that the next Ubuntu LTS would come out, uh, you will have some time to dedicate to your music and stuff. But once those two years uh, finally pass, what do you think we can look forward to? we can look forward to with the next elementary release. So um, the way that elementary S releases, we actually uh, continually release updates. We don't have a feature freeze until the next LTS. Like we'll continue to push out new features throughout the life cycle of Juno. So, um, so you don't get a break. Great. No, no breaks. <laughs> no sleep. Damn it. Never stop. No, no yeah. sleep till Brooklyn. Right. So the, um, the, the next biggest ones are uh, finishing up the installation and onboarding work, and um, I'm looking forward to pushing that into a Juno point release uh, as soon as possible. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of work going into online accounts integration and making that better. Uh, we have a big uh, rewrite of mail that we started that's going to mm. be based off of 
uh, LibCamel, which is the mailing backend that powers uh, Evolution. So we've been doing a ton of upstream work there to to make that available for more applications to use. So is that is your the the Pantheon mail is the one that was forked from Geary, right? Right. Okay. So is so the Pantheon mail is going to be using like a, a backend with Evolution. So like it's going to be have the functions of of Evolution theory and then have the 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 presentation of the the Pan, the Pantheon mail style. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing a whole uh, a complete. Nice rewrite of it like from scratch with um so we have tons of ui improvements that are going in but it'll be basically um based around a lot of the similar ui concepts that we're using in mail right now but uh yeah with all the uh, capabilities of evolution hopefully baked in as far as being able to add like different kinds of accounts and nice. uh, we're really interested in looking into things like um encryption and stuff like that that is very cool because one of the things that i like i always liked the the way that evolution worked but not the way mm -hmm. it looked and I always liked the way Geary looked, but not the way it worked. So combining that is, is, sounds exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, so anyway, thanks for coming on the show, and we appreciate it. So and also thanks you for all your work in the open source community and in pushing elementary and and pushing the 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 you know the task to try to get developers to you know have incentive and get paid to do their work. It's a very very cool uh, approach. And I look forward to seeing what, like, you know, trying out the, the latest release even more than I already have. And again, thanks for coming on the show to discuss Juno. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You have no idea how many people you've appeased in our Telegram. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Daniel. All right, take care. So next up in the show is something that is very controversial, but at the same time has a lot of potential to being a, a good thing. And that is Microsoft has announced that they are going to be uh, taking 60,000 patents of theirs and partnering with the Open Invention Network so that communities in projects that are utilizing certain packages, they won't have to worry about patent trolls that are potentially taking these these rights of these licenses for these different patents and then attacking these projects trying to like take as much money as they can. And there's actually what's really interesting. I was, I was listening to an interview with one of the people who run another network called the Lot Network. And he said that there's actually like the amount of money that is spent over every year with just dealing with patent trolls from these big companies is around like $26 billion. That's a, an insane amount of money. So the, the idea that, you know, Microsoft has decided to do something that where they're joining the network to help other projects and to not have to deal with it is pretty interesting. Um, but there could be some caveats. What do y'all think about it? I mean, um, obviously, Microsoft isn't releasing the Windows source code. Neither uh, yeah. they're opening up DirectX or any of the, the other proprietary APIs to Linux or any other non-Windows operating systems. So I don't know. I, 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 still, uh, uh, I still think that Microsoft has something like boiling uh, that we don't know about. I don't believe this whole Microsoft loves Linux thing. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, there's some as far as they love Linux. There's things that they they're doing things that are good, but at the same time, like for example, there's um, a lot of people have said you know if you wanted to prove that you are you care about the open source community and stuff like that, then you have to like stop patent trolling people and stuff like that. And that's a fair point, and they're kind of doing it now. So does that move the goalpost of saying if you really care about it, you would open source other things or make it make it like Microsoft Office work on Linux and stuff like that? Like, do we do we? Well, isn't there always a goalpost that we're going to move here and say, you know, I mean, 
you've got to give credit where credit's due, right? right? Microsoft has made strides here sure. that were never made before. They've, yeah. And yes, it does feel like we're in a parallel universe we now live in. Google and Facebook are bad guys. Microsoft good, maybe-ish. And that's kind of the parallel universe that we have flipped in here. And I, I think we need to give credit to the fact that Microsoft has extended these patents. It does protect open source. It also yeah. probably protects some of their products, like their new servers and things that they've open source or utilizing open source behind the scenes to run and some of the projects that they're on. So for all we know, it's may, maybe behind the scenes, these patents are really helping them out. I mean, um, I, I bet it's more than likely there's, you know, self interest, like their self interest is probably the most important thing is like, uh, they're releasing it because they're they they are utilizing things that could be affected by their own patents, so that might be another reason why they're doing it. Sure, perhaps, and, uh, or maybe it's just a nice gesture. Yes, it would be nice if they added Office into Linux and they open source, you know, DirectX and all of these things that we would love to see. Maybe it would happen in the future. Probably not. But probably not. I do think that if we have to give credit where credit's due. Oh, yeah. The Open Invention Network is a pretty cool network of basically they are set out as a defensive group to protect Linux from patent trolling. Mm -hmm. So that's their whole goal. So by Microsoft releasing it into this, and there's several other companies that are involved in the OIN that obviously could, I think you have to join the OIN to utilize these patents. So a lot of right. the headlines are saying completely open source and it's not really true. I don't think it qualifies as that. Yeah, it's but not open source. It, it's always been, it's been promoted as being they're open sourcing their patents and it's that, that's not even really possible without, right. but like legally, but as far as like open sourcing, they would have to be not like going to a particular, you wouldn't have to be a member of that network in order to use it if they were actually open sourcing it. So it's not really open source. But you know, it is it's it's a nice gesture anyway because in, not even that was not even just the OIN the the, you know, the Open Invention Network they also joined the Lot Network to do a, something that's similar. So they're it's not like they're just focusing on one potential potential partnership network. They're doing a, uh, at least a couple of them, maybe even more in the future. So that's they are showing that they have changed in some way. I don't know whether they're really changing that much or not but it does seem like they are putting they're, they're trying to express that they have changed at least in some way and i saw this one th this one article they were asking the question are, are they now changing their motto to embrace extend protect it's like, <laughs> huh? maybe I think the protect part is part of extend in some way i don't yeah, know I, I of course uh i cannot not give them credit um because at least the, these patents are now kind of usable by open source projects but and it's better than nothing i mean but it's not perfect it's not really uh i mean again we're moving the goalpost but that, that's pretty normal uh the, the the limit here is when everything goes gpl uh we will be finally happy but until that point that's still not perfect yeah. I mean, obviously, Microsoft could make a lot of money off of these uh, and have, in fact, as I understood it, reading some of the articles, some of these patents, they make a lot of money off of. So, you know, as a business, a business that was founded on the idea of making money and making lots of it to see them do this and lose out on potentially some of those funds, I think is a interesting gesture 
We're seeing a lot of changes at Microsoft. Some of those are really good. I think rightfully so. We're all sitting there going, I don't know if I still want to shake your hand, but I guess you can come inside the house. Like, yeah. and, uh, I'll give you a fist closely. bump, but that's about yeah, it right now. <laughs> might fist bump you. But uh, so their vice president said, we, the reason they did this is we want to protect open source projects from IP lawsuits. So we're opening our patent portfolio to the OIN and that's it. So in any, irregardless, I think it's interesting. Most people are looking at this as a very positive move, but yeah, I think, you know, ultimately we want to see more, but I'm glad to see Microsoft even doing this because yeah. a lot of companies do nothing. So there's something there. I never would have expected something like this to happen from, you know, Microsoft, like, you know, before, you know, when Balmer was around, it was just like Linux is, is cancer. And he's like specifically said that like, yep. there's like, I, I never would have expected anybody to take the reins and then basically change Microsoft into a potentially partner with Linux, you know, much less like, even if, if they do actually love Linux, we'll, we'll, we're yet to see that completely, but at least they are changing. We're like, we can be buddies, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fist bump. I like what you said. Fist bump. We'll fist bump them yeah. right now. Fist bump, um, yeah. So we've got some good news there with Microsoft. I think ultimately it's good news. They're great if there's more of it, but that's some good news. Now here may be some bad news, Michael. This one's going to shock you. Flat packs are a security nightmare, at least according to one website. Okay. okay. One website out there, flatkills.org, a really mysterious name. You don't know if it's a positive or negative being kills in it. Uh, But flatkills.org is taking aim at what they say are a number of security issues with flat packs that they are pointing out here and essentially saying that they are a major security issue. So, I'm a huge fan of flat packs. I'm a huge fan of snaps. I'm a huge fan of app images because it just mm-hmm. makes my life easier. I can get these applications and start using them versus having to do any of the other, uh, you know, steps that are necessary to get packages. Otherwise, this is very simple and you can write scripts, make it really easy to grab it. Um, I enjoy these. So I was kind of shocked when I saw this article and thought, well, what are some of these security issues? So they listed out three. There's a lot of them on the website, but there are three core ones, Michael, that he has here. You want to read through those? Sure. The the first one is, says that that many Flatpak apps have file system write permissions. And that's, that's definitely a thing. And that's one of the things about not having a sandbox is another one. And that's, they're kind of related to each other. Um, and there's also the other thing that says there's slow or no critical security updates to the apps or the runtimes that are providing those apps functions. Now, the the one part I, I kind of wanted to point out was the the mini flatpak apps like they they're saying that they don't have the right they have write permissions allowing them to modify the file system. So does every traditional file format we have currently. So like <laughs> if if that's a security problem, then so is devs and RPMs and everything else. No, the problem here is that uh, you have to think inside, like in the mentality of these apps being, well, apps as if you were on a phone. Uh, you see that on Android, for instance, uh, you see having like these granular permissions because you can't, you can trust what's in your repos, but you can't really trust stuff from third party vendors. So uh, the, the concern here is about uh, if a third party uh, with the proprietary uh, app uh, gets gets the setup inside of let's say FlatHub, then it could compromise a lot of machines, a lot of computers, and that's I think the biggest concern.
But at the same time, um, if you want to get those apps in your Linux system, uh, you have to take the risk or you just don't use them. So if you're paranoid about like apps abusing their, their permissions, then just don't use them. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it really boils down to how strictly Flatpak apps are audited by the repo maintainers. And uh, as a developer myself, I, tried, I, I actually got one of my apps on Flathub and I can tell you that the maintainers are very scrupulous. <laughs> That's good. That is very good to know. I mean, if if you think about it, when you compare it to Android, where the software isn't, you know, in in the Android system, the software is not open source as a whole. Most of the software is proprietary. And Android, I have major problems with their, their system of basically allowing apps to have access to carte blanche access to your system. And a lot of times the way that they talk about the file the the file system that you're opening up in android is in such a way where it's giving them access to read all kinds of things that that type of app has no business asking for to begin with yep. and if you don't accept those terms the app will not even work and there's just a lot of issues like that so if flat packs became like that yeah i'd be really concerned but most of the things uh, out there now, Flatpak has introduced, for instance, letting you know what the permissions that it's asking for, much like Snaps has. So if it needs permissions to a specific area, it's going to ask you that when you're installing the Flatpak. I've had right. that for the last, I don't know, a couple of weeks now when you try to install Flatpak. Additionally, a lot of the software out there is going to be open source. Not all of it, I guess, because there are some uh, possible for proprietary software to be out there. So you're going to find those issues a lot faster. And uh, like you said, they seem to be scrupulous in looking through those. But I think even more important is Flatpak is only version 1.0. Like this is a very <laughs> new thing here. So there are things they could do to probably fix that. I think the way that this site goes about it is kind of, I don't know, sounding the alarms crazily for something that probably if they sat down and had some discussions on, they could find potentially some solutions for some of the issues that they're talking about here. I mean, the solution exists and we've been using it for a very long time. It's using like uh, repos from your distro and that's basically uh, all you can do about it. As, uh, as soon as you have a, an app store of sorts that accepts apps for, from um, like third-party developers, you're gonna face this problem. And uh, in the past weeks, months, we've been hearing a lot about these kind of issues. Uh, for instance, the Snap Store having like crypto miners in a, in a game, I think it was, or again some weird malware inside inside of the AUR. Uh, it, it's it's normal uh, to some degree. If you allow third-party apps, uh, the user should be aware of what they're installing, and it's no different from going in the Play Store and downloading some crapware uh, that I don't know collects data on you. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's. There, I mean, there's definitely some issues where there's potential to um, have bad actors in any kind of repository, unless that repository is completely restricted of who is allowed to do anything. But there, but there's also going to be some negatives to doing that as well. So, if you care about security and you won't, there's no possible chance. Then, if you just use your distro's repo, then they're probably good to go. Even though there's a potential that they didn't really 
package everything and they didn't pay attention to every single piece of line of code because there's really no way for them to do that. So even then there's kind of a potential, at least a small potential that there could be some bad actors in that because one person who's voluntary, volunteering their time uh, or volunteering their time and that time has been like, you know, they're not gonna be able to do it like a full-time job. And they're also managing like 300 packages is a potential that they, they really can't pay attention to everything anyway. So even with the repositories, there is still something there you kind of have to pay, pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, you have dangers in all of these, right? You have dangers in PPAs. That yeah. could be an issue PPAs as well. A lot of people, thing. I mean, that's like the number one. When I first started with Linux, everyone's like, oh, you want that software? Here's the PPA. Add the PPA, and then you go in there. That, And I didn't think anything of it till later I found out, well, I mean, those can be dangerous, right? I mean, all of this stuff has the potential to have some danger behind it. Right. I think, you know, this individual, this website is targeting flat packs by themselves for some reason when I would say that wouldn't any of these new architectures potentially like snaps, like app images, like yeah. wouldn't they all have the potential to have this happen? And, and uh, like Gab said, it's even happened with the snap before with the game. So, I mean, these are things that we have to overcome, but I think, you know, the solution certainly isn't throwing it all out the door and... Right. And, and, and Flatpak has actually already taken into consideration some of these issues of the of the sandboxing. They're already working on making more sandboxing for with portals. Their, yeah, with the portal system. Right. So and and interesting enough, the X, the XDG portals that they're working with for Flatpak, they're actually also in collaboration working with Snaps to you implement those in Snap packages. So there's there's a lot of potential that can be you know f addressed and say that there's you know, there's improvements that can be made, but to say that they're outright just terrible is, uh, or a security concern is just, I, I think just, you know, kind of FUD. I don't really think that there's, um, there's that much clout in this, this argument of saying that they're like, they're just outright security problems. I think there could be improvements, but that that's true for everything. I mean, you could say the same thing about dev files that you download from any website. Know, well, what do like you guys that. think about the way this individual went about it, creating a website, flatkills.org, kind of raising the bell? Is this a good way of getting everyone's attention or is this a bad I mean, thing? it worked as far as attention goes because we're talking about it. So, oh, Darn it. Go. They I mean, win, I guess. I mean, in that sense, if, you, if your only goal is to get people talking about it, I guess that's, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying you should do that as a method, but it, maybe it would. You know what this this method of like opening a website with a flashy name and stuff actually reminds me of like uh big security vulnerabilities uh like <laughs> yeah meltdown specter and i don't know there were some older ones uh, i i don't actually uh, heartbleed heartbleed uh, was a big had, one yeah crack yeah, had one all, yeah exactly they all they all had like a big flashy name a website uh did some of them even get a trademark i don't know i i think there was one that you got a trademark for the logo but i don't remember which i think yeah. it was i think it might have been like the meltdown specters one or something like that possibly mm -hmm. anyway uh, what i'm trying to say here is that this is not like the right way of um talking about these issues uh why are you even opening a website to like to expose an issue about flatback it, that's so so niche and uh it it seems kind of weird to me uh it seems like these people is trying to push some agenda mm -hmm. uh, like against flatback but i'm not sure where it could be coming from to be honest yeah. or what their goal is in general like is there are they trying to push the traditional formats or are they trying to push a different 
you know, formatters or like what is the, the end goal? author Maybe. says the way we package and distribute desktop applications on Linux surely needs to be rethinked. Sadly, Flatpak is introducing more problems than it's solving. There you go. I can't agree well, with them. Yeah. I don't know what, I, what I, you know, I'd have to do some more research to give a full opinion, but I, I kind of, at this moment, I can't really agree with that yet, but let's move on to some more, you know, upbeat news. And that would be, Fine. <laughs> that would be a snap package has now been coming for Plex server. And this is really cool because Plex media server is a very popular media server that makes it a lot, like ridiculously easy to have your own self-hosted media server. And uh, Ryan, didn't you say you've used this before? Yeah, I love Plex. And I know a lot of people use Cody as well. Cody is a very That's popular alternative to Plex the out there. Um, but I, I have a special love for Plex, and I'll tell you why. I When my channel was first starting out, um, and you, I could get attention from nobody because nobody cared what you're doing when you first start a YouTube channel, um, I had done a little video on Plex setting it up, and Plex actually reached out. And, I mean, the video at that time hadn't got a lot of views. Now I think it's up to a lot. But at the time, maybe had a couple hundred views, and they're like, hey, thanks for doing a review. Here's a free lifetime pass. And I just thought that was such a cool way of reaching out to the community and caring because I was nobody. Like I didn't get, I probably didn't get them a single customer, but they just appreciated the fact that people were out there talking about their products. So either way, great marketing or really nice people, but they seem like it's more like really nice people because they were at the, we got this news from uh, Wimpy. He, he, he t uh, told me that they had basically turned this into a snap and it's in beta right now. But this started when Plex joined the Snapcraft Summit in Seattle in February, and this kind of relationship has gone on. So I think it's really awesome that they are kind of becoming a part of the community there. They're participating in these events. And I also think it's awesome that Bopi and Canonical and them are working together with these companies to bring these solutions to Linux. So maybe you use Kodi mm -hmm. and that's what you're going to use forever. Great. Some people may have invested in Plex as their architecture, and now when they come to Linux, they can still have that. And it's a very powerful tool out there that you can use for watching, recording, live TV, media consumption, and all of that stuff. And I've used it for a long time and really like it. And now having it in a snap, well, that just makes it that much easier. Yeah. The, 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 the we've, in a previous episode, we talked about how installing NextCloud was kind of a tedious effort. Then you get the snap version. It's just this right. most simple thing. And Plex is, is, sim is a very similar situation where it's a little bit tedious to set it up. But now it's like, just run this install command and you're, you're good to go pretty much like that is a, you know, a great thing for people who want to self host this, this server. And I think Plex is a really good server. Uh, it looks really good and it has a lot of great functionality. The transcoding functions are really good for Plex. So mm. like those are, yeah. those are really nice. Um, Cody's better, but that's, you know, it's still Plex is really, is a really good <laughs> project. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, this touches me personally. Uh, not about Plex. I, I don't use Plex. I prefer, I use MB actually. Uh, but mm -hmm. about snaps, um, that's one thing that I, that I always say. In my opinion, snaps uh, versus flat packs doesn't really make sense as an argument because I think that uh, one does better some things that the other one doesn't. So uh, in this particular case, I really think that the snap nails it uh, in mm. the server space. Uh, particularly because uh, it's both very easy to use and they also have a central repository, which is kind of good in server space again. 
um, and they also implement uh, man mandatory access control um, uh, and confinement right mm -hmm. on the kernel uh, using AppArmor, I think it is. Yeah, AppArmor. And that's like a very important thing for a server to have like very um, like uh, very high security standards uh, because it's after uh, after all at the end of the day a server is a machine that you you're gonna keep uh, turned on every day twenty four seven so it has to be as secure as possible because even if uh, if something happens you it's you you could not be able to shut it down you will yeah, not be able uh, something and it, it could be on and you could you could have no way to like uh, uh, pull the plug uh, pull the plug on it and uh, if something bad happens uh, it, it's a mess so having uh, this uh, additional layer of security on a server I think it's a great thing plus snaps are really easy to use uh, and they auto update so absolutely yeah, I totally and agree and I thought it was interesting because I didn't know this. Maybe probably everybody else did, but I did not realize that flat packs you couldn't run services like servers and things on them, whereas snaps you can run those type of services. Like that's why there's Nextcloud and Plex and things are better as a snap. I didn't realize that was the advantage that snaps had. Wimpy helped me with that, and then Michael, you kind of expanded it on it to it uh, yeah. with me as well. But that really puts a big case for, you know, I like using all of them. Like I, if, if it's whatever it's available in, if it's available in a flat pack or a snap, I'm going to grab it. So I don't, I'm not into the competition of one. I'm going to use one or the other or, or whatnot. I love all of them. Um, but it is interesting to see snaps having that unique advantage, uh, in yeah. that arena. I totally agree. And there's, there's actually been people who have, uh, the flat pack team, when they first announced it, they said they were focusing mostly on desktop anyway, so that they didn't really have an intent to do the server. Uh, and the app images are basically the same kind of thing where there's they're, typically just like desktop applications. And I agree with the with the idea that uh, I don't care which one is, you know, which one you're going to use. If if a developer picks one of the three, I'm happy that they picked one of the three and I can exactly. just, just download it and run it. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't really care which one you pick. Just if you pick one, let me know. And that's awesome. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we get to work on them like putting more attention to it because I've actually found this one application I was using for like a year and then they already had a snap for it and they didn't tell you unless you like read their blog post every time they made an update and then when they did when you did read it it was in like this small features section and like oh we added a snap for this like okay thanks for letting me find it finally finding this it's, it's great right now. but so it's it's really good and I do agree that the the snap system is is like the server side of the snap system is like one of the main benefits of it and when every time I want to run a server, I have to consider, do I want to use Ubuntu or CentOS or something like that? And then if it requires me to do any effort, it's like, well, snaps will work. So that'll go. So speaking of security, uh, we have a big security news uh, this week about Google+. Plus. Yeah, mm. it's fun. It's super fun. Yeah, not so fun, actually. <laughs> uh, so uh, the big news is that Google+, Plus. Uh, try to actually uh, cover up a big security flaw uh, on Google Plus that uh, apparently could have exposed uh, the personal data, including full names, email addresses, birth dates, gender, profile photos, place lived, occupation, and relationship status of up to uh, about 500,000 people. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a massive thing. But to be, they only it was only accessible to four hundred and thirty-eight developers. 
Yeah, yeah so that's, that's it. Fine. That's not that bad. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, it's totally they say terrible. that uh, actually, uh, according to what they're saying, um, there is no actual evidence that any of these data was abused by any of these 438 apps. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm not sure how uh, how believable they are in the in their current position. Well, the fact that they're telling us that we didn't te- we were we weren't honest with you and we didn't tell you that this happened, so we're totally being honest now. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to believe that. Exactly. Like, I just feel like a matchmaker here. I want to take Google and Facebook and be like, you two should be a couple. You guys just <laughs> love violating people's privacy and completely, you know, ruining any hope that we had with the whole uh, do no evil tagline and everything else. I mean, yeah. I, I take this personally because I used to write in college. I wrote uh, papers on the fact of Google and how they're doing things so differently when they first came out and how they're changing the world with how, you know, employees and employer and employees interact with each other. And there were so many things they were doing that were so unique. And now they just, every time they're in the news, it's more failure. It's more yep. failure. And the fact that it was covered up by them makes it even so much worse because they're yeah. like, well, we didn't want to get involved in the Facebook Cambridge thing. Yeah, the, like, whole, the whole reason is that it wanted they didn't want bad press. A couple. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah, they're 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 two peas in a pod. Yes, they are. <laughs> they belong together. I, I and also specifically Google. Just so you know, you do not get a fist bump. That's right. We will not fist. We're fist bumping Microsoft, <laughs> and when you walk in the door, I'm kicking you in your shins. That's how I feel about you. <clears throat> I mean, as far as Google Plus goes, no one cares. Pretty much no one cares. I mean, like, what's kind of funny is having a Google account because if you have a Google account, you have a Google Plus. Yeah, they forced everybody to have Google Plus. Well, they got, they did, they removed that as well. Like, they killed that about like six, seven months ago or whatever. So, yeah, but the bug is is in effect from like 2015. Yeah, but that means like you didn't have to use it. So, your data wouldn't necessarily be there if you didn't use it. So, like, if most of the data that they're talking about wasn't there because they weren't using it, but they did also say that some private profile fields were also included in this information, like potential leak. So I'm not trying to defend them. I'm just saying, um, the there's Google plus is not as important as, you know, most people would say that's terrible and no one and no one cares. Um, I, I would agree that there are people who use it because they were forced because they were using YouTube. Uh, cause when they forced the YouTube thing, but at the same time, People usually just ignore that anyway, and their data probably wasn't wasn't there. But who knows? Yeah, you all can make fun of me with my uh, Apple device that still sends encrypted text messaging, this feature that Android can't seem to get together. But here, I feel like in their mm-hmm. in their um, defense here, where they're saying, "Hey, we're going to release new privacy reforms in response to this," they actually mm-hmm. admitted to more data that they're taking because. So we're talking about apps, and we and and Gab, you mentioned the data that they're taking, but then in their response they say, "Well, we're going to do some new reforms that are going to stop third-party developers from accessing Android phone SMS data, call yeah. logs, and contact info." I'm like, "Wait, that's even more stuff that they had <laughs> access to." Then, that, like, I even- I knew the contact info was being done because there's a whole, "Hey, would you like to see if your friends are on this platform?" I always say no, but. I, I understand that and they do it anyway. That, yeah, that is possible, yeah. But the the fact that they even have the ability, like Google, in the first place at all, to read your your text messages and to like check out who you're calling and stuff like that, that by itself is appalling that you'd even allow it. 
much less mm -hmm. like, oh, we're going to fix it now. I was like, oh, thanks. That's the <laughs> same thing where they're like, we're going to stop reading your Gmail and scanning all your Gmail emails after 15 years of doing it. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the lesson to learn here is not to trust any big company at all. Like, these do no evil. Uh, I think there are some companies that you can definitely trust. Wait a minute. We just talked about fist bumping Microsoft, and now you're telling me not to trust I'm anybody. About fist bumping Microsoft. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I said I didn't trust them. That's, oh, so that's you fair. Fist bump me anyway. That's fair. Yeah. I'm the one lurking in the shadows, uh, watching you all and hoping everything goes well. He's just waving that's with a little cool. slight smirk, like, good luck yeah, with that. yeah, good luck <laughs> fist bumping them. <laughs> But so so anyway, uh, let's let's move on to the next topic, and that is Intel has launched their ninth generation CPUs with the Coffee Lake series, and they did this at the the recent fall desktop event. And now I'm going to tell you everything I know about this particular piece of hardware. Ooh. So Ryan, tell them what I know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this one might boomerang back to me, but I actually have some backup here because. Gab, you know a lot about this stuff as well. But this is very interesting because Intel basically launched their new line of processors. Everybody's supposed to be really excited. And I'm not an Intel hater. I've had uh, Intel a lot of their processors in the past. And frankly, they run very well. Uh, and they have fantastic performance on them. As you guys know, I have the Ryzen 2700X right now that I'm absolutely in love with and was better than, you know, as good as any Intel processor I've ever used. But this is the next series in line. This is the next latest and greatest thing. So you have the i9-9900K and some other processes out there that are meant to compete with the new Ryzen second generation line. And at least by some of the benchmarks that a lot of the, you know, blogs and magazines and news stories would have you believe are showing that there is a big improvement in speed over what AMD Ryzen processors have out there right now, which frankly would be expected because they're releasing processors after AMD has. It's kind of a tit for tat thing, which is great that we actually even have this competition, this tit for tat. Uh, so I would expect it to be faster, but there's a big price difference here. And there are some other things we can go into as well with the benchmarks not quite smelling right, Gab. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so first thing, uh, uh, as you already said, uh, seeing this kind of competition with AMD is very refreshing. Finally, we're seeing the, uh, the industry of CPUs moving forward. And with this new family of Intel processors, uh, sure, they're probably, uh, I mean, uh, benchmarks, I'm pretty sure there's, they're not out yet, like uh, reverse benchmarks, but uh, they're probably going to be like uh, actually the best uh, um, gaming CPUs you can get because they have uh, core and thread parity with AMD plus uh, a form of like a clock advantage. So they're probably going to be faster than AMD's CPUs. And uh, according to the press, uh, particularly Gamers Nexus, I've uh, I've watched a lot of their videos recently uh, covering the whole Intel uh, 9 Gen um, uh, release. So they said basically the the whole event was pretty good, and that was weird. But one thing that happened after the event basically ruined everything else. So uh, Intel actually contracted a company called Principal Technologies to make some benchmarks of their new CPUs and. Uh, 
basically this this company either they didn't know what they were doing or they were playing dumb because they uh, were not clear about uh, the procedures that they use for benchmarking. They use some GPU benchmarks uh, when testing actually uh, <laughs> CPUs. And they also did some weird stuff with, uh, with cooling because yes. they said, that they they were using like the Noctua yada yada big uh, old uh, heatsink on the Intel CPUs, and they were using like the uh, the AMD stock fan uh, on the AMD platform. And their excuse was, "Well, the Intel ones don't come with a cooler." <laughs> Great. So th- there's something actually going on with this with these uh, benchmarks and the. Um, the ugly thing here is that uh, Intel actually put their logo, so the, their name on these benchmarks, as if they validated them. Uh, and they actually went ahead and said that they uh, these results are in line with what they achieve uh, in their labs. And I, I, I don't believe that. I just simply don't believe that because uh, if you've seen benchmarks uh, of any kind, like the usual ones you see for gaming, uh, the numbers that came out of uh, of the uh, principal technologies benchmark papers are, aren't uh, realistic. At all. Yeah, it's interesting because this is not. We saw the same thing happen with Nvidia 2080 card that released. Right, there was a lot of controversy on how they've benchmarked that card, and basically some of the numbers that they were well, some of the benchmarks that they were using. Of course, they were setting new standards for how to rate their cards. And then some of the metrics that they were using to compare to say it's this much faster were also in in some cases misleading. Now you're seeing Intel, they hire this company to kind of do some benchmarks. They do some kind of funky things to make the AMD not look so well. Is this just friendly competition? This is how it works when you're out there competing. You're going to put your product in the best light and it's okay. Or as consumers, should we be angry about this and say we want this stuff to be knocked off? and have fair results here so the consumers really know what they're getting. What do you guys think? I mean, this is in no way uh, fair to the consumer because at the end of the day, this is false advertisement. And I think there's not much more to say about it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's kind of funny because there's used to be, um, you know, it always goes back to this one thing I remember from like like a decade ago or more when the first um, one, one gigahertz processor was announced. I don't remember which one it was. I think it was Intel who did it. But there was like they went to the CES or whatever, and they're like, "It's one gigahertz processor. It's a mega processor." And they had like liquid nitrogen underneath it. So it was yes, like, like, yeah. Like it's impossible to cool it. Like this, this is a benchmark. This works. Like no, no, it doesn't. Right. So, like, I mean, there's a they, lot of ways they, you can skew this data to make yeah. them look better. But ultimately, look, I have no doubt the Intel i9 9900K is going to be a beast of a CPU. If you get one, you're probably going to have a blast gaming with it. But it is $499 to get that uh, Premier card versus the 2700X at $329 to get those eight cores and 16 threads. Even if I wasn't Team Red right now, I would probably still go Team Red because I just think you're getting more bang for your buck because even in the 3D Mark scores that they had, it was 9,862 versus the Ryzen's 9,387. So it's so close already. What are you probably wouldn't notice the difference between the two unless you were doing some very specific tasks outside of say gaming and things or some very specific type of gaming. 
where you may notice some type of slight variation in speed and improvement. But really, either way, these are both some beastly CPUs that you're probably going to have a lot of fun with if you get your hands on one. Yeah, that's basically almost $2 per point on that difference. So you're going to pay an extra $2 for every little point that you get above the... I know you didn't do that in your head. So where's the calculator? Uh, It's on the other computer. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, Well, I did round it up a little bit, so it wasn't... It's not accurate. It's just... it's a. That's why I said about $2. Okay, all right, all right. Somebody's (laughs) going to check the math in the comments. Well, also in the news, we have the leading Linux desktop platform issues. And why are we why are we so negative this week, Michael? Always um, negative news. I don't think this is negative. I think this is an interesting discussion topics. Like this uh, is this is this is somewhat of uh you know that this there might be considered as negative, but I think this is a really interesting topic. Well, this topic comes from Linux developer Simon Peter, who has worked on application standards for things like app images, etc. And he has released a really interesting video. And I definitely recommend you watching the whole thing because at the end there's Q&A and he handles some, I don't say they're rough or rude questions, but some tough questions after he presents this and does a really good job, I think, you know, handling. And I don't agree with everything that he has here, but he basically lists out what he thinks are the top issues for Linux. And I want to get your guys' opinions on some of these. One of the points here is... One of the top issues is hundreds of distributions causing further fragmentation. I know we've never heard this before of an already small user base. He does put some interesting numbers to it. 3% of the desktop market is what Linux supposedly owns. We're talking about desktop market here specifically. Mm -hmm. If you take that 3% and you split it amongst all the desktop and distros, it's simply not scalable. What do you guys think? I mean, that's pretty true. I mean, we we all have uh, our favorite distro, but at the same time, we all, you know, we're all attached to and like latched on the Linux concept, but there's no one really like directly involved, like has a, this is, this is what Linux is as far as an operating system. There isn't like the Linux operating system. And if you could, you could actually argue that every single distro is its own separate operating system that are all competing with each other. They're also <laughs> all competing with Mac and Windows. So well, the fragmentation thing is probably never going to go away until we, well, probably never going away. I don't think they're really competing with each other. I mean, you, you can you can possibly think that Arch is competing with Ubuntu or uh, Red Hat. Maybe maybe no, they are competing. I think they are all competing, but they're they're going for different targets. So there's there's different, uh, different. level of competition. But I'm saying like it, the distribution as far as like operating system. If someone goes to search for Linux, they're not going to find a Linux operating system. They're going to find a variety of different things. So whatever they find could be, you know, just luck of the draw. And that would be a part of competition is like, which one are they going to find? Like there is definitely a fragmentation, fragmentation issue and a, and a competition, whether that's, there's also collaboration is a different topic because these, all these different fragmented distros are also, well, not all of them, but most of them are collaborating with each other as well. So there's a ton of like working together, but there's, but there's, they're in the, the views of like, the people who are coming like new to Linux, they really have going to have no idea which one to use because everybody talks about Linux, but at the same time, there's not really an option. That's hey, you don't have that. to take this from Michael Gab. You 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 get up to that mic and you tell him why he's wrong. Well, I I mean he's not really wrong. I mean, oh darn! <laughs> problem. Now, okay, we have to face it. So this problem has really existed for as long as Linux existed itself. Uh, fragmentation is seen as a big issue but really 
the the main focus here has to be like not uh, has to be uh, formation of people. So people should know that if they're just starting out with Linux, they should go with Ubuntu or Linux Mint or Elementary. But uh, if we solve this problem, then the problem of fragmentation goes away because uh, if people are using Ubuntu or Debian-based distros, uh, they're probably going to be fine for the rest of their lives. If they want to move to something else, is because they have the technical knowledge to work around the, uh, quote, incompatibilities that may arise. Uh, for instance, uh, I myself using Arch don't have any anyone releasing native packages for Arch. Uh, so uh, on the AUR, you see a lot of RPMs or DABs that, that are repackaged for uh, as uh, like Pacman packages, mm -hmm. uh, but that's a non-issue, uh, at least in my in my opinion, because they they ju they just work. Right. If, um, if like a company really needs to target a platform, let them target Ubuntu, or if they they need to target something more professional like. Uh, for instance, like Magic targets uh, Red Hat and CentOS, and that's a perfect, perfectly respectable uh, choice. There's nothing wrong about it. And at the end of the day, uh, if their software is really valid, the community will find a way to uh, make that app, that Ubuntu app, run on any other distro. Well, wouldn't the counter argument be, let's say we want to get, I don't know, Adobe into Linux, and we tell Adobe, we say, Hey, we've got three percent. This 3% market here, which 3% of a very big number. So it's still a lot of customers that you can target with getting your Adobe products now on Linux. Now I'm not saying we'd want that, but let's just say it happened. Now, what happens when Adobe's like, okay, great. I want that full 3%, but how do I do that when I've got this system where I've got you know, 0.5% of those users are on Arch. I've got 1% of the users on an Ubuntu base. I've got 1% of the users on a Red Hat. And so that 3% is broken up so much that now as a developer, I need that 3% to justify me paying to develop on towards Linux, but I can't tackle that full 3% because it's so fragmented. Right. Is that a, is that a real issue? That's not a real issue, in my opinion. That's what I was trying to say before. So you have two options here. Or uh, either you uh, target just one arbitrary platform. So you, you say you target Ubuntu or uh, RHEL and just call it a day. And that's already enough for most things. Uh, or you target uh, a universal packaging format like Snaps or Flatpaks, mm. or, uh, even better, app images that uh, in my experience are the most compatible with any distro. But again, if you don't want to do that, if you still want to do like a simple classic package, just target Ubuntu, please. I I'm begging you, don't <laughs> try to do it all. Uh, you don't need to. Just target Ubuntu and everything will work out fine. I promise you, you every Arch user that wants to use your product will use it. Yeah, so that's that's, that's different because Arch has an in a diff, way different ecosystem than a lot of the distros. For example, like um, yeah, but, Fedora wouldn't you wouldn't allow something that's proprietary in their repos. A RPM fusion. We're right, but they'd have to learn how what that is. So, like for example, if a if a distribution a, a user for going to Fedora has to learn that RPM fusion is a thing, Fedora doesn't tell you that's a thing. 
Um, so like there's, they, they are working on adding it to the next version of their software center kind of thing, but it's not, right. it's not really a like, Hey, you should check this out because you, there's extra software for you, but there's, and there's also copper, which is kind of a similar situation for them. But the same thing is the, the, the companies are also getting massive backlash when they pick something like just Ubuntu. If they pick just Ubuntu, the, the, like a, a large part of the community, at least a large vocal part of the community will just berate them endlessly until they either give up completely or give in and start doing for other distributions, which 90% of the time is probably going to go probably 99% of the time is going to just give up completely because they don't want to, if, why would they put that much effort and deal with that much hate if they're really not getting that much effort? It reminds me a little bit of DaVinci Resolve, right? So they came out and they released DaVinci Resolve for CentOS, I think Mm -hmm. is the, the primary target is CentOS. And I had DaVinci Resolve. I had a Blackmagic Intensity Pro card. I tried to install DaVinci Resolve in Ubuntu at the time. Could not get it to work for nothing. So I'm sending support tickets to them, all this stuff, and they come back saying, sorry, we only use CentOS. And there are forums where people tried to get it to work in Ubuntu, and some were successful at times, some weren't. As I understand it, it may have gotten better now that they've added some additional uh, OSs that they support. But I could go into Arch anytime and use it, by the way. At any point, I go into Arch. It had it there in the AUR. I could download it, use it, and mm-hmm. work perfectly. The Arch is a very different beast in the way that the users kind of take care of themselves and they find a way to get it to work, whereas the other distros don't have that unless you start getting into the universal package. The universal package really does seem to be the answer to this problem because oh, yeah. the reality is... This, this fragmentation is never going away. And I don't know that we want it to. Some people are calling for it, but I've rather grown to enjoy it. Like sometimes I get bored in Fedora and I'll boot in Arch. I'll get bored of Arch. I'll boot back in a Fedora or Ubuntu Mate. Or I like having those choices. Well, I to like be fair, this, this, this particular uh, keynote that was given or talk that was given is not trying to say that the fragmentation should go away. It's saying that the underlying base core of a standard API set and how the desktop should be expecting things and how developers could be expecting certain pieces of the API to be there. Create standards, basically, is what yeah. you're saying. He wants. Yeah. To, he was basically just suggesting that there, it, he doesn't. He's also specifically said he doesn't know who's going to do it or how it could be done. But he's just saying that this was. This is like the, if we ever want to make it where the fragmentation is not a problem, we either need to do the universal approach where he's also approaching that with the app images because he's the developer of app images. Like he's he's. He's work, He's talking about just that, uh, but it would be more beneficial to the entire uh, community in the ecosystem if there was a standard that people could develop. Well, he for. doesn't support Flatpak and Snaps necessarily because he said specifically in there, Flatpaks and Snaps are not a solution, but rather a workaround adding another layer versus having a common desktop platform, much right. like the kernel is a stable platform. No, his argument, my point is that he's the he is the developer of app images. He created app images. Right. So his point is like this is like workaround that he thinks would be beneficial to the platform. But if we were to do it in a more uh, core level uh, approach for standards, then the app images wouldn't necessarily even need to be to, to exist. Interesting. Well, listen, I think it's a really interesting conference. You guys should go out there and listen to whether you agree with us or agree with him or don't. Uh, it's still interesting to hear some of the topics because he had a lot of other oh, things yeah. he brought up in there. And he does try to provide some solutions as well, which makes it kind of unique. Uh, and there's a lot of presentations that sometimes just drop these issues and don't really offer any uh, fixes for them. So go check that out. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Yep. So coming up next, 
Uh, we have some news regarding the code of conduct. Yay! I know people are going to be excited about this. this. Is such a yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Michael is so excited he wants to talk about it right now. Oh <laughs> man, I just, I just, I just walked right into that. Oh, well done. Okay. So the recent code code of conduct um, has been a little bit controversial, you know, a little bit, and. There's been, there's been actually some interesting changes that have been proposed by a kernel developer uh, named James Bottomley. I think it's that's how you say his name. Yep. Uh, he's proposed uh, two fixes that would change the code of conduct before it's been released in the 4.19 kernel uh, cycle. And one of those, I think, is a really, really interesting approach. But we'll get talked about the rest of them as well. But the, the first one is the redistribution of data for particular people involved in the project. The current situation is that he wants to change the wording of the code of conduct to say that if you, you're not allowed to uh, give out information or redistribute the contact information unless it is already or ordinarily collected by the project. And the reason for this is because there's a situation where when you take code in a, in a mailing list and mm -hmm. you... Uh, redistribute that code you're automatically putting in the attribution to the person so if they weren't to if they weren't going to um, do a patch this way if they weren't going to include this patch it's potential that just by even contributing to the kernel itself you're violating the code of conduct so this is like a very this is if if any of these things are added this was one that probably should be because it's a very good I know word. I know our patrons are like no not more code of conduct and probably our listeners too but here's the interesting thing and the reason why I want to bring this up this is the reason why because we talked about do we include this or not the interesting thing is they're starting to patch the code of conduct so yeah. linuxy isn't it isn't yeah. that the linux way so I mean, that's that's I, I was i was actually in, in, anticipating this i didn't expect him to do it so quickly before he was really even actually used that's but. why <laughs> this is such great news to me because they're doing what we do in the open source community and with linux we take something that gets controversial they listen to the community you kind of see what the fallout is and then you go through there and patch it so we had the story about linus in some of his views, which I think cleared up some of the confusion there. And then I see these patches coming in and all of the patches that are recommended here, I'm a huge fan of. Number one, this one is a simple thing, right? But then you have the Linux kernel developer, Gert Uterhoven, and I know I probably messed that up and I apologize, but he put a patch to remove the explicit list of discriminating factors and instead wants to replace it with a harassment-free experience for everyone. So some of those factors and things that were put in there explicitly caused people to have a lot of the panic and scare because people thought, well, maybe this other group is coming in and they're going to change things and all this stuff. But really what they're doing is they, they're taking this now and making it fit the community versus trying to, in making it a part of the community versus trying to adopt some third party COC and just leaving it as is and making everybody deal with it. So I think this is the very unique Linux way of dealing with things to start patching mm -hmm. it and improving it and shape it to Linux. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I really hope so. This could, this could be very well a way to get out of this code of conduct nightmare that we're seeing more from the community aspect of it uh, because the, the, the really uh, interesting thing about this new code of conduct is the, the, the reaction of the community. And I mean, that's, that's what it, the a code of conduct is about after all. So 
but I don't know. There are too many weird parts involved that uh, shouldn't be involved with each other, I think. So this is probably uh, the effect of that. Yeah, yep. I, th I think this is a good way of approaching those those issues of those things that, it, that should or should not be evolved. Because a lot of people are bothered by the code of conduct having specifics, but it's sometimes being very ambiguous at the same time. So like they're setting up a potential of, you know, this is what you're allowed to be rather than this is what you can't do. So yep. the this the way he's modified it um, first is doing the the changing the the redistribution thing it solves one of the bigger problems of like the functionality of it but the changing it so that the uh, uh, gert i'm going to try uther utherhoven utherhoven mm. probably not right Winter but heaven? we'll see Sorry, we'll, gert. We'll, we'll see who was closer hopefully he'll he'll comment in the in the the, the youtube video or something like that <laughs> but anyway uh, i think his approach is really good because it's showing that it's an an a harassment free experience for everyone and rather than specifically like pointing out people because if you or pulling out uh factors of people that could also mean like if you don't include literally every factor that exists you are kind of automatically like setting that aside and saying that's okay this way when you're just doing it more specific to the uh, the overall goal that could be more beneficial to the code of conduct itself absolutely so now that we have abused our poor patrons and listeners with more COC news, let's give them the happiest news of all, Michael. Oh, yes. I am so excited for this and how ridiculous it is. This is a game that is recently come out of early access for Linux, and it's called yes. A Gummy's Life. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and it's it's a, it's a ridiculous game about your... What? your it is. It's ridiculous, but it's also ridiculously fun. How is it any more ridiculous than strapping rockets onto a car and knocking around a soccer ball? What's ridiculous about uh, strapping rockets to to a racing car? Yeah, <laughs> what, I don't understand <laughs> your question. I'm just saying, how is that any more ridiculous of playing soccer with a rocket-powered car than a gummy bear coming to life and killing other gummy bears? Okay, one, you're implying that I don't acknowledge that Rocket League is is ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it is, and it's awesome. Just like okay. Gummy's life is ridiculous, and that's awesome. And it's awesome. So, like the 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 basically, it's an idea of like these these candy becomes sentient somehow, and then they start battling <laughs> each other in this weird battle thing. I don't it know. Sentient. I love it. Yeah. Yes. So, I don't know what they're what this this is just an interesting concept because it's basically like a a third person uh, uh, arena battle fighting game. And uh, there's actually a, some other games called Gang Beast that's a very popular, or it's been around for a couple of years or so, I think, uh, at least a year or so. And it's, it's 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 very similar to that. But what's really cool is that Gummy is like has a lot more potential because you can have more people in it. You can and it's the graphics are way better. It's got more games. Oh, you can customize and, your gummy, by the way. You want a striped gummy? Oh, I didn't you want even a watermelon-shaped gummy? You want a teddy bear gummy? I bought this game the second I saw it. I was like, I am spending the money because killing another gummy bear is just. <laughs> It's genius. It and it's is also pure. hilarious when their blood is just gummy, like gummy yeah, residue gummy stuff. There's like splatters <laughs> gummy everywhere when you beat on other gummies. And this is what I'm most upset about is there's not enough people playing this. The servers, you can still play the single player and stuff, but the servers are way too empty for the awesomeness that is a gummy's life. So I am officially saying now, Ballistic Overkill has been kind of the official game we all play when we're done with Destination Linux. Sometimes we play it with patrons. Yeah, outside of Rocket League. 
I think a gummy's life is going to take the place of ballistic overkill as our whoa, official. Whoa. It, it needs to. They can be together. You know, they can be the equal <laughs> equal level of awesome. That's fine. Gab, no- will you play a gummy's life with us? <laughs> I actually just wait listed it. Wish listed it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Nice. Because it is ridiculous, but it looks it looks amazing. So I do have plans to get it this weekend. I'm going to uh, show Ryan how 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 much you know how powerful your gummy powers are. Well, I was just going to say like how how much of a like how much of a care bear that I what I don't know. Wow, <laughs> that just didn't work. But what we will do that is not going to work. Live stream it with us having. I'm going to buy a plethora of gummies. And I'm going to eat gummies and play this game. That way, I'm kind of killing them in real life and virtually. You, you get <laughs> to eat gummy whenever you kill another gummy. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, like so, a... So, so the gummies you eat, you eat are only the ones you're able to kill. That is brilliant. <laughs> That's the reward system is you get that, to eat a real gummy. You just took it meta. It's a gummy game inside of a gummy yeah. game. <laughs> so everybody needs to pick that up because you will see us playing it this week. Uh, a gummy, a gummy's life. So very fun game out there. Also, since Zeb's not here, I couldn't torture him with a pixelated game, but I did pick a pixelated game out to torture Zeb with. Uh, it was Hazelnut Bastille, which currently has a Linux demo out available for it. This is very cool. If you are a fan of Zelda, this is a 2D adventure game out there that has some, you know, nostalgic feel of like a Zelda-like game out there. Heavily, heavy conscious level design. They call it like a Metro, Metroidvania, like progression system. Uh, kind of the classic open world dungeon format, 16-bit graphics, lots of pis- uh, pixels that Zeb would just absolutely love uh, out there. So this is a pretty cool game too. If any of you guys check this one out. Yeah, it actually looks quite refined compared to many other like pixel games that you actually see on the store. This actually looks like they put some very good effort on it. Yeah, I think it looks awesome. It does remind me, like even some of the dungeons and stuff look kind of Zelda-y, the way that they're presented and some of the bosses. Now, Michael, I know you may have an opinion on this, but I need you to hold that. I need you to channel Zeb and tell our listeners what would Zeb be saying right now? Oh, it was something like, well, how long is this video? And when, how long would it take me to cancel this video? Uh, okay, done. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done, sir. But for the rest of you that like pixelated games, this is a pretty cool one uh, to go check out. So there's a demo available that you can download now and within Linux. So they made the demo available for all platforms, which I thought was cool. Uh, and if you like it, you can throw some support to their Kickstarter out there that they will be kicking off. So now we are in the tips and tricks of the week. And Gab, we are going to have you give us a tip and trick here. What an honor. So originally the, um, the app pick for uh, today's week was Handbrake. Uh, <laughs> so Zeb chose uh, Handbrake as a tool to basically transcode your videos uh, from and to different formats. And Handbrake is really uh, a multi-tool and that everyone that works with video of any kind should have. Um, it's a really simple and user-friendly tool, yet uh, decently advanced to, uh, to be able to change uh, like the bitrate uh, as well as the codec. And uh, if you want to uh, like uh, make it... Uh, 
I don't know, if you want to take a movie and change the, only the audio codec, you can do that. Um, it's a really useful tool. But uh, what I want to what I want to uh, tell you about tell you about today is actually FFmpeg, and that's very funny because uh, Handbrake is based uh, on FFmpeg. Uh, so FFmpeg is basically uh, really this Swiss, Swiss Army knife of video and audio. Um, it does everything that Handbrake does, a little bit more, and it's uh, a command line application. So uh, the great thing about this uh, is that you can use it to script uh, stuff. So for instance, uh, let's say you have a server where you keep all of your uh, family uh, videos. Uh, what you can do is you can uh, program a script that whenever you put uh, some new videos in a certain folder, takes them, uh, convert, uh, transcodes them to like, uh, let's say VP9, that's usually uh, more space saving compared to H.264. And I don't know, uh, maybe uh, reduces the resolution to 720p and then removes the original file. Uh, that's something you can do with FFmpeg. Uh, again, uh, if a tool is, can be used from command line, it's scriptable and that's a great thing in my opinion. Also, if uh, it, it's not it's not really that easy to use, uh, the commands are pretty convoluted, and there are many options for depending on the codec and stuff. But if you can uh, use Google, it's a really awesome tool. Yeah, and there's I mean, FFmpeg is a fantastic tool, and they the convoluted methods of doing the parameters. It also matters what order you do those parameters in, which could be very drastic. You could just move one from one section and flip them up, like back to back. And that could destroy the output versus having the correct way. So uh, mm-hmm. there, that's also why something like Handbrake is a very useful tool. Because if you don't want to deal with the command line, which a lot of people don't, and I understand that. I mean, I, I do like making scripts, and they're very useful. Um, and, but Handbrake is a fantastic solution for those who don't want to deal with that kind of thing. And Handbrake is quite good. There are some things you got to get used to, like if you want to resize something or you want to change the codec, you got to be more, you got to be you know pretty attentive to every time he doesn't really save the settings and stuff like that. But uh, it is definitely one of the best options for converting existing videos to like do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, you know, if you if you do want to check out the, like descriptive ability, FFmpeg is a fantastic option for that. Very cool. Yep. And next up in the show for the spotlight software spotlight, and that is Remina. Yeah. Remina is a really awesome remote desktop client. It's basically it was started as an RDP software, so you could remote into Windows systems. They added VNC, NX, XDMCP, and SSH, like all kinds of stuff. So like it's it's getting more and more beneficial to use it. Uh, you know, every release. Uh, but our, our Rimina has been around for a very long time, and it's a fantastic option for you know remoting into a Windows machine, for example, if you want to, if you don't want to use TeamViewer and you want to use something that's open source, Remina is a great option for that. And there's actually something that's a really interesting way of using Remina that Ryan pointed to me recently. So uh, how do you use Remina? Well, I normally have been using FileZilla for everything, you know, getting into servers or stuff or just using the terminal. But Remina, when it came up and I started looking into it, has some really unique features in it that make it a very convenient GUI tool to quickly be able to list your servers out and connect them, including SSHing into servers directly. So you can have, for instance, Linode servers and my DigitalOcean servers. I can have them all set up 
all the connections there. I can SSH and it's going to pull up just the terminal because obviously there's no GUI there. Uh, but then if I have, say, Raspberry Pi, where I do have a GUI interface as one of my servers or one of my other actual servers that have a GUI desktop environment, I can connect to those as well. So it's kind of, in a way, a lot of all-inclusive tool uh, to where you can connect to any type of server and interface with it, even though it's meant for that kind of team viewer-like replacement that a lot of people utilize it for there. So I think it's really a really powerful remote desktop client that you can utilize for multiple multiple purposes. They have plugins out there available. They have scripting in there that you can include uh, to send certain server messages or commands to the server each time, kind of like macros that you can set up within it. So there's a lot, even though the initial setup of it is super simple and fast, I mean, I could figure out how to use it in seconds. There's a lot of advanced features also behind the scenes that you can add into it to make it even more useful. Very nice. I mean, I tried out the the the, user, the, the way you're doing it, like to doing the managing of the files with SSH. And it is a very nice way of doing it where I don't have to remember the password or the fast phrase to make sure that I get into the, the server. That's awesome. But I'm still kind of lazy and I just want to drag and drop the file with the SFTP client and stuff. <laughs> so FileZilla is still the thing. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, I mean, as long as, because I can use SSH with FileZilla, if that wasn't an option, you know, I, I would totally consider something else. But anyway, so. Um, that's it for this show. And, uh, thank you for watching episode 92 of destination Linux. As always a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us, for watching, for listening, and for really just constantly giving us that support. It allows us to get awesome content in here, like the Daniel for interview that we got and having Gabe here from tech pills. On our oh, show yeah. to fill in is another awesome perk of you guys supporting this channel and showing it all the love because we can bring in talent like that at a moment's notice. So thank you so much for joining us for that as well. And thank you all for your support. Oh, yeah. My pleasure, guys. Yeah. Uh, especially thanks again, thanks again uh, Gab, for, for joining. And uh, also, you know, be sure to keep those, those emails coming. Uh, the the emails we get every week is just really awesome to read. And we do read every single one of them, even if we can't put them in each episode. Uh, we do appreciate absolutely any of them that you can send. Uh, they are very interesting to read, and we you know we thank you for that. Uh, if you want to keep continuing to do so, you can send a mess an email to his comments at destinationlinux.org, and you can also contact us by going to. Uh, destinationlinux.org slash contact where you'll find links to our Mastodon accounts, uh, Discord, Telegram, things like that. Even Google Plus. Still, technically still, <laughs> there is a Google Plus thing. Not for long. So, yeah, not for long. Well, well, we'll see. But um, anyway, just keep those comments coming. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to send them to our way, however you want to do it. And also be sure to smash that like button. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you would like to join us for the live experience of this show, you can do so by going to destinationlinux.org slash Patreon. And we'd also appreciate if you were to use those uh, social media networks to share the show and let everybody know, as well as rate their podcast on your review or whatever podcast app you use as well. So anyway, with that, that's it for episode 92. And everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye, guys.